Hello, and welcome to BMO's Intune podcast. In this episode, we're going to dive into the education space and stocks, starting with commentary and color around the frantic move to remote learning in the K-12 and post-secondary sectors toward the end of the last school year. We'll then take a look at expectations for this coming fall in those areas, what's been happening in the childcare space, what happens when we eventually get back to a state of normalcy or, or really a new normal, and we'll round it out with some pros and cons for these areas, depending on the outcome of the November elections. Joining us on the podcast today, we welcome Jeff Silver, BMO's lead analyst on the education space, as well as our lead analyst on business services. Let's dive right in. I realize there may be a lot to unpack, Jeff, but given what was going on around mid-March of this past school year, how did the K-12 through sector handle the move to remote learning, and what was the investment landscape like for the related equities? Fantastic. And Todd, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. So it's been a, a really interesting spring, or it was an interesting spring. Um, you know, most schools were just not set up to handle the transition to remote learning. Um, before COVID, less than 1% of K-12 students in the United States attended fully online schools. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, younger kids, probably the experience going fully remote is not something that kids can do on their own. Maybe when you're in high school, you're a little bit more apt to it. But, you know, grades one, two, and three, obviously, you really got to be motivated to do that. So we went from less than 1% of K-12 students going online to almost 100% of K-12 students going remotely in a matter of weeks. And I think what most schools just try to do was get to the end of the school year um, using whatever technology they had beforehand, whether it was Google Classroom, whether it was Microsoft, um, YouTube, Khan Academy, Zoom, you name it, the goal was just to get to the end of the semester. Um, There were lots of issues. You know, one was access to technology. Um, Many of the students might have had access to technology at school, but didn't have access to technology at home. Um, There was a lot of money thrown at it. A number of school districts provided iPads, laptops to students. Not every family got one. Um, It didn't work as well as they would have thought. Um, You also had an issue with faculty access to technology. You would think, you know, teachers would be able to do that themselves. But there was a, a famous picture of a number of teachers sitting in a Walmart parking lot just using the Wi-Fi access um, because for whatever reason, the access wasn't good for them at home and they couldn't teach well. Um, you had a lot of people, you know, using the same Wi-Fi, sharing was an issue. So students and faculty had a lot of access problems. Um, finally, there was just student interaction. You know, it, it students, you know, it was very difficult for students, even if they had access to technology, to really stay motivated. Um, I have a number of friends of mine with kids, you know, young age, and they basically said, you know, it lasted maybe for 30, 40 minutes. And then after that, you lost the kid. So you went from a class that was going, you know, six, seven hours a day to maybe if you were lucky getting 60 minutes of learning. So it it really did not go that smoothly. Um, I think in terms of uh, the publicly held companies, besides the one we mentioned, the one that I think will benefit more this fall, and I know we're going to talk about that in a second, is a company called K-12, LRN is the ticker. Um, where they provide something that most parents were not aware of. It's actually a fully virtual option, and these are public schools, so they're free. And the company had actually just reported earnings uh, a couple weeks ago, and they gave an early estimate on the fall. There's probably about another eight weeks for their enrollment period to go, where they thought that 
enrollment was going to be up about 23% year over year this fall so far. Uh, it's probably going to be better than that. And traditionally, they've seen maybe, you know, 2 to 3% enrollment growth. So you're seeing a lot of parents looking for new options this fall um, that I, I think uh, you, you'll, you'll start to see an impact. You've already seen impact on the stock, but you'll start to see an impact on their fundamentals coming up this fall. Um, one other thing is, is the publishing companies. You know, many of them have been transitioning to virtual learning, but, you know, many of them were just were not that well positioned to handle what was coming up in the spring. I think they'll do a little bit better this fall. <laughs> Those were strange days indeed. If the thunder didn't get you, the lightning would. And people were really just trying to do the best they could for their students and, and families. How about the post-secondary sector? How did it handle the move? Okay, that's a great question, Todd. So post-secondary historically has had a greater percentage of students going online, specifically in graduate programs. I think last year before COVID, um, a little over 30% of U.S. graduate students were already online. And that makes a lot of sense. Most graduate students go part-time. Um, you don't necessarily need the social interaction as much as you do in the undergraduate area. Um, so post-secondary, I think, was much better prepared to go online because, again, a sizable portion of those students were already there. Uh, undergraduate, um, it, it wasn't as easy. Before COVID, uh, you probably had somewhere in the low teens percentage of students that were going online. And, you know, again, a, a lot of schools, just like in the K-12 sector, were really not ready to handle it. Um, probably a little bit better prepared than K-12, but you still had the same issue in terms of student access, faculty access, um, you know, interaction. Again, maybe the post-secondary students were a little bit more self-motivated to learn online, but, but the goal was just again to the end of the semester. And, you know, I think most schools breathed a sigh of relief that they were able to get there. There, there was one clear winner from the publicly held companies uh, a company we cover called Chegg, C-H-G-G is the ticker. And Chegg historically had provided uh, rental textbook rentals. Uh, they had pivoted a number of years ago to providing online services to post-secondary students. And these services range from anywhere to from online tutoring to a product called Chegg Study, where they provide um, at the end of every chapter of a textbook, there's typically questions Chegg provides answers to those questions and helps students work their way through those problems. So, example, you might be taking, you know, a calculus class and they'll show you not only the answer, but they'll show you how to solve the problem as well. And Chegg saw a huge increase in subscriber growth in the spring. Um, I think they went from something like 30 percent subscriber growth in the first quarter to over 60 percent, six zero in the second quarter. And one major reason was a lot of the students, when they had a trans, uh, transfer remotely, just lost access to their on-campus support. Um, so you had Chegg's programs really fill that hole. Another, when this was actually a little bit more interesting, um, the company has had a problem with password sharing. And it's been a long time since I was a college student, but I remember even when I was in college, College students are very clever to find, you know, backdoors, the way around uh, maybe doing a little bit less work or, you know, just finding ways to, to I'll, I'll say, manipulate the system a little bit. And you had a, a lot of folks that, you know, were sharing their passwords while they were on campus. It's a little bit more difficult to borrow your uh, roommate's laptop and his or her password when you have to access the system through a different IP address. 
So what I think a lot of folks did was that, you know, kids were home and, you know, they went downstairs and they said, hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, I need $14.99 a month to subscribe to this service that'll help me get through this semester. Um, I'm sure their parents were thrilled to put it on their credit card. So, you know, the, the lack of ability to share passwords, I think, also helped uh, subscriber growth pretty dramatically. It's going to be interesting to see what happens this fall if they have that kind of subscriber growth as more students you know, move back to more of a hybrid approach or even some students go back on campus. But Chegg was clearly the winner last spring. Well, Chegg services were definitely a winner for my oldest daughter, Jeff. She purchased a monthly subscription in the spring and you know, after going through it and finding it incredibly helpful during her school's pivot to remote learning, she's plans to keep using it. It really was uh, very helpful to her. I know you've touched on it a bit already, but let's look specifically toward the fall. How are you thinking about it in terms of the K through 12 and post-secondary sectors? And how are the schools and companies looking to navigate what appear to be waters that remain pretty choppy? Yeah, so a great question. Um, you know, th th this is changing literally by the day. Uh, we had an announcement just yesterday from the University of North Carolina that actually started on campus. Unfortunately, they had a number of um, outbreaks of the virus in, I think, three or four different locations, and they just made an announcement to send everybody home. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. So, you know, we, we went from schools both in the K-12 and post-secondary sector pretty optimistic that they'd be able to bring everybody back for the fall. And I think what you're going to end up seeing is a majority of students not coming back to their location. Obviously, depends on the specific geographic area. You know, a lot of companies, a lot of schools, I think are going to start out trying to go um, on campus. But, you know, I think the point is, is that they're going to have to be very flexible. And I think a lot of schools, both in K-12 and post-secondary, learned a lot, um, have been using the summer to prepare a little bit better, um, not only making sure that both students and faculty get access to technology, but training teachers how to teach online. You would think it would be very easy. It's not. Um, so we've seen a lot of effort being focused on that. And hopefully if they do have to go back uh, to a remote kind of learning this fall, um, you know, it goes a little bit smoother. So I think in terms of the, of the publicly held companies, you know, Chegg will probably be another winner. If we have a majority of students going online, you're going to see a majority of students, you know, using Chegg again. So I think they'll be the clear winner. I, I, I'm not going to say it's totally in the stock. The stock's done very well. It's been uh, one of our better picks, although we did downgrade it recently on valuation. Um, but I think fundamentally they're going to have another good quarter. Uh, we mentioned the LRN K-12. Uh, I did cite that statistic about their, uh, you know, the early estimate of their enrollment growth. I think it's going to do a heck of a lot better than that. So that company will continue to benefit. Uh, a few other companies that I think will see some benefits this fall. Uh, one is a company called 2U. Um, T-W-O-U is the ticker. They provide what's called online program management services. What the heck is that? So they basically help traditional universities put programs online. Historically, these programs need a lot of lean time. For example, you want to put an MBA program online. You can't just press a button uh, if you want to do it correctly and just shift everything remotely. It, it takes you know probably 12 to 18 months to get a new program online. So I did not initially think they were going to see a, a lot of benefit this fall, but they surprised me in terms of how flexible they've been. Um, they've been working with a couple of their existing partners, specifically Simmons in Amherst in the Massachusetts area. 
helping them take the programs that they had for undergraduate students and transition them remotely, including teaching teachers how to teach online. Um, it's not going to be a gigantic revenue uh, impact this fall, but it did show me how flexible they were and, and how they're able to help their existing partners even gear up this fall. I do think there'll be a bigger winner you know, in the coming years, and I know we'll talk about that in a second, but um, they did surprise me on their flexibility. Um, finally, uh, one other group of quote-unquote winners, some of the for-profit colleges where you've seen a lot more interest from traditional students going online, and they may not have had a great experience with their traditional universities last spring. And as we're seeing more and more schools announce that they're going to go back online this fall, you might see um, enrollment growth accelerate a bit at some of the traditional universities. Now, I'm not expecting folks you know, dropping out of Harvard and enrolling in Strayer University as an example. And I don't mean to disparage Strayer, but you know, it, it's not Harvard. It's a different kind of, of program. But I do think you will see you know, folks that are going to maybe some of the regional schools, maybe some of the community colleges that did not have a great experience, discover schools like Strayer that have been teaching online for 20 years as opposed to their own schools that maybe have been doing it for 20 weeks and, and decide to go with the Strayers of the world. And, you know, you might see um, some uh, impact on enrollment, probably more at the graduate level than the undergraduate level. Strayer itself admitted that their undergraduate programs are under a little bit of pressure. But I do think, you know, some of the for-profit colleges might gain some share this fall. Got it. Lots of moving pieces and schools and universities and, and really families, for that matter, will have to be ready for adjustments and changes to any plans. Let's pivot to talk about child care. How is the environment shaping up for companies in this area? And is there anything to do here from an investment perspective? Yeah, another great question. So, you know, that's probably the most difficult area to transfer remotely. Uh, my sister happens to be uh, an early education uh, teacher. Uh, she teaches three-year-olds. And, you know, she had to be pretty adaptive when her school went fully remote. But again, using the same tools we've been talking about in K-12 and post-secondary, using Zoom, recording videos on YouTube for her students. But, you know, it was really difficult. Her students are three years old. Um, again, the parents had to sit with the kids to make sure that they were watching. Um, you know, I don't want to say it was replacing, you know, Barney or I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but Paw Patrol. Um, so she had to be pretty uh, entertaining to make sure that her students were going to stick around for at least 30 to 60 minutes. It wasn't easy. What's interesting, what's happened with, with child care providers, it's not that the demand for child care went away. But what happened was that in many of the states where these child care centers were in, there was mandatory closure. So, you know, even if parents wanted to send their kids to their centers, they couldn't because the centers were closed. And what was interesting is you started to see some states opened up. You would think that child care centers would be the first ones to be open in order to encourage the economy to come back. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, kids at these young age, even though there's a lot of statistics showing that, you know, thank God coronavirus wasn't um, as prevalent with younger age kids, but, you know, younger age kids tend to, you know, share diseases um, pretty quickly. So there, there was some reluctance from some states early on to open up childcare centers in the first phase. I think you've seen as more states have opened up, most childcare centers are now open. Um, but the problem was, is that a lot of parents are still working from home. So if you were taking your child to a child care center on site or close to your office, you're not traveling 10 miles just to drop your kid off and then driving back home to work from home. So even though the centers were open, the capacity utilization has still been pretty low. 
Um, we cover a childcare provider called Bright Horizons. BFAM is the ticker. Um, they're the largest provider of worksite childcare. And, and even though they've been gradually opening up more centers, utilization is still pretty low. And I, I think it's going to take some time to get back to kind of pre-COVID utilization. There's a lot of studies saying, you know, a sizable percentage of folks that were not working from home before might be working from home even when we get back to some sort of normalcy. Maybe they're not going to work five days from home, but they could work, you know, three days in the office, two days from home. So companies like Bright Horizons are going to have to make sure that they've got, um, you know, capacity or, or, or seats, you know, in areas where some of their customers are living as opposed to closer to the office. It's going to be interesting to see how that company does. But but I do think, you know, from a long-term perspective, you know, the secular trend of companies offering childcare as a benefit, specifically as you want to encourage more women in the workforce, this is an unbelievable benefit to have. So this company will come back, but it's probably going to take some time to get back to where they were pre-COVID. You mentioned normalcy. What happens when we get back there, or at least to a point where some people might view it as normal or even a new normal? Have there been structural changes to these sectors? And are there any companies best positioned to benefit from those shifts? Yeah, another great question. Um, Let me start with the K-12 sector, and we'll start specifically with the company K-12 LRM that I mentioned earlier that runs these virtual schools. Um, they're probably going to have the best fall enrollment in their history, at, you know, at least since they've been a publicly held company in terms of the growth that they're going to see this fall. The, the question is, is that, you know, let's hope there's some sort of vaccine and in a year from now we return to some kind of normalcy. Are, are the students that suddenly discovered this company this fall going to return to their classrooms next fall? Um, I think, you know, it may not be a lot of them, but a sizable portion of them will. But I think the company has other growth engines Um, They had actually been expanding in something called career readiness Um, at the high school level. It's vocational programs. It's, you know, um, software engineering, teaching kids how to code. And that's the area of growth that they've been focusing on the past year or two. Um, I think you're going to see a greater acceptance of that, especially with the economy the way it is. It's going to take some time for the job market to come back. So I think you, you will see students that, you know, may not necessarily be college material, looking for that skills training. So even if some of the managed public school students do return to their traditional brick and mortar schools next fall, hopefully they can offset that with some of the growth in some of the other areas. Um, I think in terms of post-secondary, you know, as I mentioned, we've been seeing greater acceptance at the graduate level. I think that will continue. I, I think what the pandemic has done has probably accelerated the acceptance of at least hybrid learning at the undergraduate level. I mean, again, traditional college students are still going to want that interaction. But the the vast majority of students, or at least a sizable population of students that go to undergrad, are not necessarily your traditional 18 to 22-year-old. I think the average student attending undergrad in the U.S. today is probably closer to 25. So a lot of those, quote-unquote, older students don't necessarily see that uh, need that campus experience at the undergraduate level. So I think you'll see a greater acceptance of undergrad education online. Now, it may take some time to get to that 30 plus percent kind of penetration rate we talked about at the graduate level, but I do think you'll see undergraduate acceptance uh, continue to increase. And, and that's why a company like 2U that does focus mostly at the graduate level, but does have an undergraduate component, also has a couple components in the skills area, uh, not necessarily focused on, co- on high school students, but more 
college and post-college students, coding boot camps is one area. They provide short courses where you can become certified in certain languages without getting a quote-unquote degree. Um, so I think that'll be a company that will continue to win even when we return to some sort of normalcy. That was to you. Got it. Okay. Last question, Jeff. I realize you don't have a crystal ball, but given that education is such a highly regulated industry, do you have some thoughts around what the upcoming election might mean one way or the other for the education sector? Yeah, great. Uh, another great question. Um, I, I'm not going to talk about you know my political preference, but I'll just talk about it in, in the scheme of looking at these stocks. So, so the area that's most sensitive to the political environment would be the for-profit colleges. I mentioned Strayer, which actually is part of a public company called Strategic Education, STRA is a ticker. Uh, a few other companies I cover in that area. Um, there's one called AdTalum, A-T-G-E. It's the old DeVry. Um, they run for-profit schools, mostly nursing schools and medical schools. Another company I cover called American Public Education, APEI, runs some for-profit schools under American Public University and the Hondros College of Nursing. Um, what you typically see is, and again, I don't mean to stereotype, but for this sector, Democrats bad, Republicans good. And let's go back to 2009, which was the last time we had the so-called trifecta, uh, a Democrat in the White House with President Obama and Democrats controlling both houses of Congress. That was probably the worst time we've ever seen for this sector. And I won't go through the gory details, but you had some folks that were hired into the Department of Education that didn't necessarily have a, a positive opinion of the for-profit sector and put some regulations in place that did not help the for-profit sector and actually hurt the for-profit sector. One, uh, the more, more notorious one, was something called gainful employment, which created this calculation looking at a specific program and measured the debt that a student got relative to the earnings that he or she got. And if you didn't cross a, th a certain threshold, the department, the U.S. government would not allow what's called Title IV funding, which is federal financial aid, to be used for those programs. So the most egregious example were culinary arts school, was where you were paying $150,000 to get a bachelor's degree, and you were lucky to get a job for twenty-five grand. That did not work. Now, this regulation almost exclusively applied to the for-profit sector. If I would have taken this framework and apply it to a history degree at Harvard, you probably would not see you know, those programs pass either, but it didn't matter. So long story short, you know, the for-profit sector was not a place to be. You saw uh, a number of companies go out of business, and even the better-run companies had to close some programs. The fear is that will happen again under a so-called trifecta. So let's assume it does. The nice thing is that the companies that I mentioned that are around, for the most part, most of their programs passed this gainful employment framework, you know, back in the day under the Obama administration. Again, the sentiment was against the stocks, but it really did not hurt them operationally. You know, you did see some noise on enrollments because there was just so much negative sentiment against for-profit colleges that students were starting to ask for the first time, is this a for-profit school before they enrolled? So, you know, we could see that happen again, but, but honestly, I'm just more fearful of the sentiment. And, and we've already seen that to some extent in stocks. 
Um, you know, I kind of joke that 95% of the investors that I talk to won't touch these names in an election year, especially one where it looks like we might at least get a Democrat in the White House. So um, that's going to be tough to try to attract interest. But again, I think it's going to be more sentiment than, than, than operationally. On the K-12 side, um, K-12 happens to be, I'm, I'm talking about the K-12 sector, not necessarily the company, but even the company, this fits. It, it's more local. Um, there's not a lot of federal regulation and federal funding um, at the K-12 level. There is some, but it's mostly at the state and local level. So you really have to look at your state and local races. Um, I think the bigger issue is going to be on the funding level. So it, it really doesn't really make a much of a difference what's going to happen with the fall elections. Um, honestly, it's going to be more of an issue in terms of funding. And I know the federal government is pouring a lot of money into state and local governments, but you know, state and local governments get most of their revenues from tax revenues, traditionally property tax revenues and income taxes. And you know, unfortunately, those are probably going to move in the wrong direction and will be lagged. So I'm more worried about funding. Uh, as opposed to politics. Ironically, the company K-12 might benefit because the the amount of funding given to this company for a virtual school is about 70 cents on the dollar that you typically see in a traditional brick and mortar public school. So a bad economic environment may actually help that company. And finally, just ending up on childcare, we saw a few weeks ago that actually um, the Democratic candidate Biden um, announced uh, a caregiving fund um, specifically for elder care and child care. So there's some speculation that there'll be more money thrown at child care from the federal level. They could have universal pre-K that could actually help companies like Bright Horizons if they decide to participate in that environment. So generally, you know, the election worries are with the post-secondary area, and there might be some ancillary benefits for K-12 and child care companies. Well, this has been great, Jeff, and we covered a lot of ground. Thank you for joining me and providing such great color, context, and insights on the education space. I'd also like to thank Rachel Armstrong, our resident podcast technician. And of course, a thank you goes out to all our listeners who tuned in for this Intune podcast. Be well, and until next time, do your best to keep it safe out there. Thanks for listening to Intune. Presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.